DW, Living Planet. Hi everyone, Charlie here. Living Planet is taking a break for the holidays. And in the meantime, I'm going to share some episodes with you from DW Environment's On the Green Fence podcast, from their fascinating mini-series, Deep Dive on Plastics. If you like it, you can check out their other episodes on our YouTube channel called DW Podcasts. Okay, here's Neil King. It's London in wintertime. A plane, Flight 510, is approaching Heathrow Airport. There's fog on the ground. The crew have been given the all-clear to land. But as they start the descent, something goes wrong. Push out of Mayday. Then paper of Mayday. Mayday. Captain Pressure going. In the plane's left wing, there's a small metal box containing a mass of wires insulated with plastic. And this plastic has started to disintegrate. The control function of the box fails. There's an explosion. The plane never makes it to the airport. Instead, it crashes, wreaking devastation on a suburban area in West London. All those on board perish. What went wrong? It turns out a mutant bacterium that escaped from a lab infiltrated the aircraft. And this rogue microorganism, well, it feeds on plastic. And eventually the bacterium was able to degrade the plastic and it spread out in London. And a while after, you had airplane crashes, subways exploded, simply because the plastic was used for insulation. The entire infrastructure in the city starts to break down because so many things are made of plastic. And that's what this bacterium is gobbling up. The bacterium was eating the insulation. You had a short circuit in the electricity and then... Uwe Bornscheuer is a professor of biotechnology at the University of Greifswald in northern Germany. And the sci-fi book he's talking about is called Mutant 59, The Plastic Eaters. The the book contains a love story and the book also has a good end, a happy end. It was published in the early 70s at a time when public concerns about plastic waste piling up in landfill and in the environment were just starting to emerge. The story also featured in the BBC TV show Doomwatch. That's what you can hear in the background. More than 50 years on, this sci-fi tale perhaps isn't as far-fetched as it seems. OK, not the part about bacteria making planes fall out of the sky, but plastic-eating bacteria do exist. And scientists like Uwe believe these microorganisms have a role to play in helping us tackle the plastic pollution crisis. All around us there are microscopic creatures working to break things down. These microbes, such as bacteria and fungi, have evolved powerful enzymes to biodegrade stuff in their environments. Think of leaves on the forest floor, dead animals, food scraps. But what happens when there's a new man-made material that these bugs don't know how to deal with, such as plastic? On a chemical level, plastics are polymers. 
That means they are made up of long chains of smaller molecules called monomers. These strong chains are produced by refining fossil oil or gas and then converting it into monomers in a process involving extremely high temperatures. The reason plastic doesn't biodegrade in nature is that the enzymes in most microbes simply aren't equipped to attack the strong chemical bonds of these man-made polymers. But there are signs that this is changing. Get this, because there are millions of tons of plastic ending up in the environment each year, certain enzymes are evolving to break this material down. And some bacteria are even using it as an energy source, or as food, to grow. Which, from an evolutionary point of view, makes a lot of sense. Because if all the other microbes living together with you can only eat sugar, or protein, or fats and oils, then you are the only guy who can eat the plastic. You have a huge advantage. Yeah? Because if there is no normal food available, you can still grow. Biochemist Uwe Bornscheuer and his team at the University of Greifswald have discovered three enzymes capable of breaking down plastic. They were looking in the soil at the site of a company that produces polyurethane, a type of plastic used in things like mattresses, insulation in buildings and running shoes. And, well, these enzymes that they found had adapted to degrade that particular type of plastic they were exposed to. It was a lucky find. This is a little bit like playing lottery. Yeah, the chance to become a millionaire is very little. We played more or less the same game, hoping that we can find these unique enzymes, especially in that soil which was contaminated with polyurethane over the decades, mm -hmm. and maybe microorganisms adapted to it. But naturally occurring enzymes capable of attacking plastic are slow. And so far, they've only been shown to work on some types of plastic, like PET and polyurethane, and often only under certain conditions and temperatures. So over the past few years, scientists have been genetically modifying them in the lab to turbocharge their performance and make them more robust. In the meantime, different plastic-degrading enzymes have been discovered in worms, in cows' stomachs and in fungus. So what does all this mean? Could it help us tackle the plastic waste problem? Could we at some point release these engineered bugs into the environment so they can chomp through the plastic piling up in landfills, for instance? It's a question that Uwe gets a lot. Can we make a microorganism which we throw in the ocean which eats the plastic and things like that, besides the fact that there are 10 different types or 20 different types of plastics and you need 20 different microbes, and besides the fact that this is forbidden because this is a genetically modified organism, you are not allowed to throw into the ocean. Uh, the problem is it would be completely out of control. And you don't want to have your window frame falling out of your window because certain bacteria can eat your window frame. Yeah. Yeah. Or, your, or your car. <laughs> or your car. Yeah. <laughs> or your sailing boat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I think it's better if scientists like me and others uh, try to develop methods, enzymes, engineered microbes to use them in a factory where we collect the plastic pieces. Of course, the consumers like you and me, we have to make sure that we separate the plastics at home, at least plastics from other dirt and waste, that this goes to a factory which can say, okay, PET this line, nylon that line, polyurethane that line, polystyrene over here, and then we have ways to solve the plastic problem. But that's something, Uwe, that's never even occurred to me. That it, it means that, in a way, that if you had these operations and you developed an enzyme that was really, really super efficient, 
you'd have to be very careful and keep it contained, right? <laughs> yeah, for the enzyme alone, it doesn't matter because the enzyme cannot do much outside. I mean, if I throw my enzymes into the Baltic Sea next to Greifswald, <laughs> the microbes living in the water will just eat it. But if you throw in microbes, intact microorganisms, they can, of course, divide and become more and more microbes. And mm -hmm. then you have, then, then it's out of control. So the plan would not be to release these enzymes into the wild and let them clean up. Rather, they'd be put to work in a controlled environment, like a big factory, where they could break down plastics into their chemical building blocks, their monomers. And these building blocks could then be used to make plastic that is essentially as good as new. The major plus with recycling in this way is that you can produce virgin quality plastic without getting more fossil fuels like oil and gas out of the ground. And reducing reliance on fossil fuels is crucial when the plastics industry is trying to bring down its CO2 emissions. We mustn't forget that it's an industry with a comparable carbon footprint to aviation. But there are some big downsides and limits. Much of the work on enzymes is being conducted on a small scale by scientists in their labs, like Uwe. And for this process to play a serious role in plastic recycling, it would have to be dramatically expanded. Uwe thinks it's only a matter of time before that happens. I think it's clearly a game changer and we have to think about or have to discuss different types of plastics we target. Currently, all polymers are made by chemical methods. So PET is made from terephthalic acid produced from petrol and it's made from methylene glycol. And you can isolate this and then you can make a new polymer without the need for petrol again. So this is true recycling. What would you say are the challenges that would, uh, you know, hamper this from being used on a larger scale, from, you know, upscaling this and um, really going at this at, on an industrial level? We now have shown the first three enzymes, which are different in their actions. So one has to pick the best one. And then we have to use our protein engineering methods to make the enzyme more active, more stable, produce it on large scale, and not only in the academic scale in my lab, And then you need the real engineers and the company who builds a factory and develops all the process details. So a time frame of five to eight years is, I think, quite likely to establish such a process, at least for the major polyurethane, because if you have different starting materials, mattress, insulation material, your old running shoes, you have to maybe adapt your process for the different uh, quality of the materials. But yeah. I think um, it's not it's most likely that this can be developed. Yeah. And I mean, what could you tell us about how, I mean, how energy intensive would this be and how fast could they actually break it down? If you could, I don't know, is, are there any calculations on that? If you wanted to break down a ton of polyurethane? <clears throat> I, I, I simply cannot tell because we have done this on small scale. It will not be cost efficient for sure. Yeah? Mm -hmm. So it must be a process where you at least convert 150, 200 grams of starting material, polyurethane waste, per liter within a time frame of half a day. Um, and then you should be in a range where it can become attractive for a company to mm -hmm. invest into this process. Of course, I don't have this company, so I rely on our industrial partner that they push this or other industrial, other companies go for that and develop a process for polyurethane. But I think we don't have to wait 20 years for that. Our scientists have created a one-of-a-kind enzymatic process that allows PET, 
the world's second most commonly used plastic to be biologically recycled. Unlike conventional recycling processes, our revolutionary approach returns to the fundamental components of PET. It allows all A French startup called Carbios has already made big steps towards deploying enzymes for recycling plastic on an industrial scale. And it's got major companies like L'Oreal, PepsiCo and Nestlé on board as partners. Our teams have also developed an enzymatic additive that accelerates the biodegradation of PLA. Cabios is building the world's first biological recycling plant in northeastern France, with the goal of being up and running by 2025. The company says its new plant will be able to process 50,000 tonnes of PET, or pet waste, per year. For comparison, more than 70 million tonnes of PET is produced annually around the world. Carbios says its bioreactor and genetically modified enzymes can degrade the equivalent of 100,000 PET plastic bottles in 10 hours. But what's the catch? Well, at the moment, this process uses a lot of energy, mainly because the plastic waste has to be pre-treated so that the enzymes can break it down. That will likely improve, as enzymes are engineered to be more efficient and can function at room temperature. That would save energy costs. But right now, the process has a higher carbon footprint than traditional recycling or mechanical recycling. Mechanical recycling is the most popular way to recycle plastics. It involves washing, sorting and grinding down plastic waste into pellets to produce new plastic. The downside here is that the quality of the material takes a hit after each cycle, which means it can only be recycled a limited number of times. But studies have shown it scores best in terms of emissions and climate change impact. Enzyme-based recycling can be energy-intensive, but in theory, it still uses less energy and releases less emissions than producing virgin PET from fossil fuels, according to the US National Renewable Energy Laboratory. And the quality of the plastic is just as good, so that it can technically be recycled this way an infinite number of times. Every barrel of oil we don't need to use in the future to make plastics is good for the environment. Whether during the process of converting petrol into a certain polymer, you produce, of course, carbon dioxide or carbon dioxide equivalents. This can be avoided when you burn the plastic later on. Uh, instead of recycling, you again produce carbon dioxide. So every barrel of oil we can avoid because we use less plastic, don't use single plastic, or have an intelligent way to recycle plastic and reuse it. And what about the cost? Well, virgin plastic is far cheaper to produce than PET that's been recycled with the help of enzymes. A study by the US National Renewable Energy Laboratory estimated that PET monomers produced with enzymes can cost up to twice as much as virgin fossil-based monomers. This can change, for example, if the oil price goes up or down. And the competitiveness of recycled plastic could also shift if more ambitious targets for curbing plastic waste or emissions are adopted. While we're speaking about costs, there could also be a strong economic incentive for improving the way we deal with plastic waste. Plastic packaging loses 95% of its material value after a single use, costing the global economy billions each year. 
And recycling could be lucrative if it were possible, let's say, to take a water bottle in landfill and make it into something more valuable. A lot of the work that had been done before I started working on this had treated plastic very much as something that could be perhaps recycled into more plastic. Um, but I, I started thinking about this. I thought, well, actually, that's not really... In, in the longer term of things, it's still going to be uh, plastic at the end of life and it's still got um, potential to be a pollutant. So what I was interested in was actually degrading the plastic into its constituent parts, so the building blocks that make up this plastic. If we can break it back down into those building blocks, can we then actually, at a chemical level, modify those building blocks and convert them into something totally different? Joe Sadler is a Chancellor's Fellow at the University of Edinburgh in the UK. And her research focuses on using biological systems to upcycle waste plastic into useful substances that would otherwise be produced directly from oil. She genetically engineered the bacteria E. coli to create something from plastic that we can eat. And so the, the way I wanted to demonstrate this was by converting uh, PET, so that's polyethylene terephthalate, and that's the plastic that plastic bottles are made out of, for example, a lot of food packaging. Um, I wanted to break that plastic into its constituent um, parts, which we call monomers. And I took one of these monomers and converted it into the compound called vanillin. And vanillin is um, an interesting molecule. It's responsible for that very characteristic smell and taste of vanilla and what we might put in our cakes or ice cream or whatever mm. and um, by doing just four chemical modifications catalyzed by, by an engineered cell um, we could actually convert this plastic degradation product into this um, ice cream or food flavoring molecule um, and so for me this was a really exciting proof of this concept that we can actually start thinking about plastic waste as a resource and we can start using it as a feedstock to make other chemicals. But how, I mean, how did that idea come about? Because that sounds like, I mean, to me, as, as a layman who has no idea about any of this, it, it sounds crazy. Something that you put in cake can, and you take, you take pet, you take a plastic and you can turn it into something that we can actually eat. I mean, how did you, it, it seems like, were you eating a piece of cake when this idea arose or how did this happen? <laughs> No, I wish, I wish. Um, no, so this comes back to my background in chemistry, actually. I was, I remember very clearly sitting at my desk one day thinking about what I wanted my research to go in the future. And I've always had this fascination with plastic and, and thought that it's, it, it's so many inefficiencies in its current life cycle. And I actually just looked up the structure of pet plastic and I started drawing out chemical structures And I used my knowledge of chemical modifications of, of chemistry, basically, to think, well, if that's the starting material, what can we do to that molecule chemically? Um, and then looked at what we could do to it and then found out that, you know, with, with the help of looking into the literature, found out that actually with four simple steps, we could convert that chemical structure from the degradation plas of plastic into the chemical structure of, of vanillin. And it is, you said, uh, the chemical structure, it's identical. So this, this would also taste the same. You could actually put this in your cake and it would be exactly the same. There wouldn't be any difference. That's exactly right. So theoretically, and I stress this is theoretically because this is still very early research. We've got a lot of work to do before we can get to this point. But theoretically, if you could make the vanillin at a, at a high scale, 
and purify it um, away from all the, the other stuff that's in the reaction mixture. Um, that vanillin would be chemically identical to the vanillin that you would currently buy from the petrochemical-based um, industry. Uh, and that's because it's precisely the same molecule. The, the vanillin that you get from natural sources, so extracting it from the vanilla plant, which actually actually accounts for less than 1% of global demand, um, that actually has other small low-level impurities present in it. And this gives the natural vanillin a slightly more full-bodied and rounded flavour profile than the chemically-derived vanillin. What is the, the kind of ratio, Joe? You know, I mean, if you were to take, I don't know, I mean, I'm, I'm just guessing now, you took a tonne of, of PET, uh, plastic. I mean, how much vanillin would you get out of a ton of, you know, if, if you go through the process? We're working on very small scales at the moment. So if you, it's hard to say from a ton of PET, the conversions from the PET's actually quite high. That's not the problem. The problem is more that we can't have very high concentrations of PET in our reaction. So you'd need a huge, huge volume in order to process a ton of PET. You'd need a, an absolutely vast volume of, of cells and of um, your reaction to actually convert all of that. So you'd, if, if you had the capability to convert a ton of PET, we'd probably get out quite a lot of vanillin, maybe like half a ton of vanillin. Mm-hmm. But we're not at the stage yet where we can go anywhere near that scale because the volume of reaction we'd need to do and the volume of biomass we'd have to create in order to catalyze that reaction. Mm-hmm. And the reaction, I mean, the conversion process, that is being driven by bacteria, right? That's right, yes. So what we did is we we took some um, a strain of E. coli, which is used a lot already in, in industrial biotechnology. And it's a strain which is, is always held within the laboratory. It's non-pathogenic, so it's not going to cause any um, threat to human health. Mm-hmm. And what we did is we um, fed it some DNA, which encodes uh, the genes, which will make the proteins that will do the chemistry. So we designed, we, we looked in the literature, we found the enzymes, which we know can catalyze these reactions that will convert the, the plastic into the vanillin. And then we uh, designed DNA to, to tell the bacteria to make those proteins. And then we inserted that into the bacteria themselves. You can then feed the bacteria a chemical, which basically says to them, start making those proteins. And you can hijack the cell's native metabolism and cellular machinery to actually um start making these sort of non-native proteins. Um, And at that point, you can feed in your plastic degradation product. It will take those molecules, using those proteins that they've expressed and convert it into vanilla. Would it be also possible to apply this process to, um, you know, if we took other types of plastics, you know, besides PET, you know, for instance, plastics that are more difficult to recycle? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, The pet is what we in the field, we describe it as the low hanging fruit. We like pet because it's it's relatively easy to break down into very um, uniform and predictable building blocks. And it always breaks down into the same thing. And this makes it quite easy to upcycle because we always know what we're starting from. Um, And so most of the work that's been done to date focuses on pet for that reason. A much bigger challenge in the field is looking towards other other plastics because they're much, much harder to break down. So PET is linked by um, what we call ester bonds. It means it's got a carbon-oxygen linkage in the backbone chain. And this makes it, this is like a a sort of handle that things can attack and break it down. Mm. But some plastics are solely linked by carbon-carbon bonds in the backbone polymer chain. Um, And there's there's no sort of chemical handle that you can really attack and target for degradation. And this makes them really difficult 
to degrade. Um, so the degradation of these plastics is still an outstanding challenge. I mean, given the sheer amount of plastic waste that we have, I mean, it, it's hundreds and millions of, of tons globally, right? Um, plastic waste that we're grappling with every year. I mean, how big a role do you think can enzymatic recycling or upcycling actually play? And, you know, will it become more important in the long run than mechanical recycling, in your opinion? Yes, this is a really, plastic pollution is, as you say, it's a very big problem and it's a very complicated problem. And I don't think there's a sort of one size fits all solution. And this you know, the problem is being already tackled from people from all sorts of different backgrounds, from chemists, biotechnologists, mechanical engineers, people in policy. Um, you know, it's a really multidimensional set of solutions which we're trying to develop to, to tackle this problem. I think biological degradation upcycling is a very important part of that toolbox. And I think there are situations where it's really well suited. Biological solutions will only be useful and competitive if we can overcome the scale issues that we currently face. Um, and that's a really big challenge for us at the moment. Joe, final question. Um, what are the next steps? What are your plans uh, for the future? What's next? So what I'm hoping to do next is actually tackle these sort of less easy to degrade plastics so the non-hydrolyzable ones that I touched on earlier. Um, I think PET that we have, we've, we've demonstrated that we can convert PET into vanillin, and that's, I think, great proof of concept for the field. But now we need to move on to the sort of the real challenge, which is degrading all sorts of plastic waste, so polyethylene, polypropylene, polystyrene, into predictable um, mixtures of degradation products, and then start thinking about how we can upcycle those into useful products. Uh, and, but until we can really tackle these non-hydrolyzable plastics, which actually account for nearly 65% of all plastic waste, I still think we've got a lot of work to be done. So it's, a, it's an exciting time for the field. Many thanks to Joe Sadler from the University of Edinburgh there. New enzymes that can decompose plastic are being discovered all the time, from the Arctic to the Alps. A global study from 2021 found 30,000 different enzymes in the environment that could degrade 10 types of plastic. Findings like these grab headlines and public interest, perhaps because of the hope they offer in finding a solution to the plastic pollution problem. But what they also highlight is the impact our dependence on plastic is having on the environment the fact that microbes are adapting to plastic because it's everywhere. Work to harness their potential is advancing rapidly, but as we've heard from Uwe and Joe, enzymes can only be part of the solution. We can't rely on them to deal with all our plastic waste. And there are some significant limitations. Enzyme-based recycling will only play a role if the process can be scaled up and if it's able to compete on cost and carbon footprint with other forms of recycling. As far as Ulva is concerned, the priority should be to rethink the way we use plastic and to prevent it ending up in the environment in the first place. So I think for different polymers, there will be different solutions for recycling. I think the most important message is we should avoid single-use plastic because this harms the environment mostly. And for the other plastics, which we use to construct houses or which are used in cars and wherever, we should ensure that we have an intelligent labeling system so that we can recollect and sort them better than we do it now. Plastic materials have many advantages and they are durable. I mean, you can use them a hundred years. 
in many cases. So we should not forget that plastic is not bad. We just have to make sure that we use it properly and especially discard it properly. And that soundbite from Uwe Bornschreier brings us to the end of this week's episode. In the next episode of our plastic series, we'll be taking a closer look at bioplastics. Today we have all kinds of different bioplastics which are perfectly able to substitute conventional plastics. And they have quite a few properties which make them better than the conventional ones. Seaweed is very abundant. Um, so compared to other types of kind of like biomass crops, uh, we have uh, something that's not going to compete with, with food, which is really great compared to the first generation of bioplastics. I hope you'll be joining us again for that. Many thanks to my colleague and producer Natalie Muller and my sound engineer Gerd Georgi. And a big thank you to all our listeners for sharing, reviewing and subscribing to On the Green Fence. My name is Neil King. Take it easy and take care. You've been listening to an episode of the On the Green Fence podcast from their Plastics mini-series. For more, you can find them on the DW Podcasts YouTube channel or on all podcast platforms, where you'll also find more Living Planet. I'm Charlie Shield, back soon with more environment stories from around the world. Don't drink the milk. Weird name for a podcast, right? But it will all make sense, I promise. And no, it's not a podcast about milk. If you like historical intrigue, a bit of culture and a sprinkling of controversy, this one's for you. The arguments of homeopathy are based on, like, sand, and the sand was pouring through my fingers. I'm Rachel Stewart, and for this new podcast from DW, I'm travelling around Europe, tracing the backstories of objects, ideas and movements that you know well. But maybe you never really stopped to think how these things got to you. Condoms are known as French letters in the 19th century. Syphilis is the French disease, but in France it's the Italian disease. Join us to follow the strange journeys of these everyday things and see how they change shape as they're exported through time and around the world, by force, by chance, or by choice. No need to pack your bags. Just subscribe to Don't Drink the Milk wherever you listen to podcasts.